HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hello, this is Dana Callan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I speak to an amazing woman who inspires me with the breadth of what they do and the way that they open up new worlds. Today, my guest is Hawa Hassan, who is an entrepreneur and a cookbook author who's in Bibi's Kitchen, the recipes and stories of grandmothers from eight African countries that touched the Indian Ocean has recently been published. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you on Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much, Dana, for having me. So Bibi's Kitchen is a book in stories, in recipes, and in history. And I loved the fact that the book has so many facets to it and you can read it any which way. One of the core things that you talk about in the beginning is this sense of home. And I start this conversation with you about the sense of home because home is something that you've lost and found, regained, and reimagined, recreated over your entire lifetime, starting at age four. I'm curious, what about the notion of home to you is most important when you look at your own sense of home? I think growing up in the 90s, all over the place, my idea of home had been associated with a place. And over the years, losing that couple of times over what I learned was that it isn't so much a place, but people. So for me, the idea of home as I've gotten older has changed many times. But the way that I identify home now is wherever my mother is. In the book, there was one of the grandmothers who says that she identifies home as where her umbilical cord is buried, which isn't exactly where your mother is, but it does go back to this notion of exactly who and where you come from and what land is yours. You moved at age four because of civil war in Somalia. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the first home and food that you recall? Because that's something that you're revisiting now and have been for the last many years of your creative life. Yeah. So I was born in Mogadishu, which is the capital of Somalia on the Indian Ocean. We have the longest inland coast 
in all of Africa. So that's our pride and joy. And I was born to a mother in her late teens, a father in his mid-20s, late 20s. My idea of home at the time and what I vividly recall is the busyness of Mogadishu streets, tea shops, my mother always having company for lunch, going to my grandpa's house on the weekends, picking papaya with my brother. Those are some of the things that really stand out to me when I think about the very first place I called home. And then you went to Kenya and eventually arrived in the United States at age seven in Seattle. And I'm curious, like, what was that community like? And did you have that sense of Belonging, not belonging. Seattle was an interesting place to arrive to in the early 90s. I think that inner cities of America were kind of going through what we're going through now as a collective. And so we settled in south of Seattle, which is predominantly immigrants and Black people from America. My original thought was, for the very first time, I'm meeting kids who were Cambodian, who were Vietnamese, and who were Russian. Those were my very first friends. And then for me, Seattle was a pit stop. I thought, oh, I'll be here for a bit. My mother and siblings will come. And then we will carry on to our next place, whether it was a home in Seattle or moving on to Canada, which at some point had been a plan of my mother's. I I didn't know what was next. What I did know was that as a family member and the eldest daughter, there's five girls and I have an older brother. So I'm the eldest daughter, which is like a big deal in, in our culture. I thought my siblings would come, we would settle somewhere and we would start over. So the very first years I was in Seattle, I really was just holding down the fort. I had no intentions on assimilating. I had no intentions on creating a community. I just thought you'd be a good girl. You go to school, you learn, you wait for the others to get here. And then that didn't happen because your your mother and siblings ended up going to Oslo instead of coming to Seattle. Is that the moment at which you're like, this is it. Like, let me figure out how to assimilate. Right. That was the first time where I thought, okay, you're in this big, big country. You got to get with it. And so I was in elementary school at the time. And I had an incredible teacher named Miss Buki, who I don't talk about enough. But Miss Buki really took me under her wings and helped me get command of the English language, spent a lot of time with me after school, introducing me to the aquarium and taking me to amusement parks and just really teaching me the the lay of the land. And then when I got into middle school, I had just really turned off all the parts of me that were Somali. I stopped wearing my hijab. I joined the girls basketball team. So I formed this identity for myself, which was really based on what is an American girl? What is someone who's born here and raised here? And so I toyed around with the idea of not wanting to be called Hawa. There was some time in there I was asking people to call me by my middle name, which is Ali. There were growing pains, but ultimately I think what I discovered over the years is that I couldn't run away from myself, which is first and foremost a Somali person. One of the big themes in Bibi's Kitchen is this notion of community. Like, what's your first sense of community? And like, what's the importance of that to you? It's also a question that you ask every one of the grandmothers in the book. So I feel like it must be essential to you in some way. Yeah, over the years, as I've gotten older, it really is the driving force in my life. Wherever I go, I tend to plant myself, whether it's 
the south end of Seattle or Cheney, Washington, where I attended school for a bit, or Fort Greene, Brooklyn, where I live now and have been for 15 years. But for me, the key ingredient to building community and in the ways that I've done over the years is really showing up and being accounted for and having other people count on you. And so my very experience in that really in Seattle came from Miss Buki, who was not only gracious, but had said, I'm going to introduce you to my people and we're going to take care of you. She was an intricate part in terms of introducing me to what that felt like in a country that felt so different to me at that age. And then later on, it became actually a facility which was called Rainier Community Center in Seattle. I went to 4-H there, and I spent a lot of days after school there. It was the very first place where I learned to do my hair. I had camp counselors who took me school shopping, and so that's kind of what I've carried with me all these years. Right now, being in Fort Greene and being a big part of the community. I'd love to talk a little bit about what you've been doing in, in feeding people because it's such a tough time and you've taken your skills and your passion and your desire to show up for others and turn it into feeding. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So at the start of the pandemic, I like everyone else, I think I was a bit naive about the distance this virus would go. And so I'm not really good at spending a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. And I really wanted to make sure that the people who were around me and that the people who were helping our community, the, the people who were on the front lines had the fuel that they needed. And so I got this idea because I, like everyone else, was at home watching the news, watching Instagram, and a dear friend of mine who's a doctor, I wrote him and I said, can I help with anything? He said, I could use a hot meal. And I thought, well, if you could use a hot meal, I wonder how many others could. So I went to one of my favorite restaurants, Colonna Verde, a good group of people who I'm in community with, and I told them what was going on, and they didn't hesitate. They said, okay, when do we start? And the next day, we delivered, I think, 200 meals. And, and every day from there, we did the same thing. And, and today, we still do the same thing. On Wednesdays, we deliver to a nonprofit called Brotherhood Sister Soul in Harlem. They feed 600 families, and we're a part of their effort to make sure that children and families have something warm and delicious to eat. And so as we go back into lockdown, I'm sure soon some of the needs are going to come back. And now we have a distribution channel that makes me feel good about what we're capable of doing. One of the dishes that you made, and I don't know how often you change the food, is actually in your book. The Degal Gumbe. Which I was not going to try to pronounce. Can you tell me about that dish? And it has a rich history for you. Yeah, it's a it's a chicken stew with uh, yogurt and coconut. It's made with bite-sized boneless chicken thigh. I like to use chicken thigh because it holds on to the juices of the stew a little bit better. It's tomatoes and jalapenos jalapenos and red peppers and hawaj, which is really the backbone of the dish, which is a spice from Somalia that consists of cardamom, cumin, coriander, turmeric, cinnamon bark, whole cloves. It's a warm and savory spice that can really be manipulated to enhance the dish however you want. And it's a dish that I turn to often for comfort. And it, it may sound heavy with the yogurt and the coconut milk, but ultimately it's a very light dish that you can have on a bed of spinach or on jasmine rice. One of the things that I feel people are struggling with right now, and I'd love your advice on, is you're motivated to 
get up and do something. And I think so many people are, are paralyzed, which begins to feel like just absolutely the wrong answer. How have you brought people along on this journey to help others? Like, what do you recommend? I think sometimes, and especially in this country, we start at big picture and we work our way backwards. But I like to tell people, start where you are. Like, start in your own community. Do what you can with what you have. If that means you clean up the park once a week, that is you being in service to the people around you. If it means you buy extra vegetables at the grocery store and you drop it at your neighbor's door, that is you being of service to someone else. Well, let's talk about this amazing book. You cover eight African countries. And this book, it was a big project. There were a number of people who were like, too big a project. No one knows about Africa. No one cares. The audience isn't there. And you're like, you're just wrong. And this book needs to be done. How did you choose this exact slice of Africa? Because obviously there's 54 countries and you picked a very particular way to look in many ways. Like there were so many things that you thought through before this book came to being. So ultimately the intention to tell African stories through cuisine was how can I draw parallels and how can I get the audience which I'm trying to educate to see this place from a lens that they're familiar with. That to me was the Indian Ocean. So the Indian Ocean is the thread. I chose grandmothers because they were people who were being left out of the conversation. And one thing I often was saying to myself long before this book was in the world was how do people know so much about Indian food but not African food? And how can I get them to understand that the flavor profiles along the Indian Ocean are very reflective of Indian cuisine? I loved meeting all the women in this book. And I'd love to know, how did you meet these women? How did you find the grandmothers who are the backbone of these stories and these recipes? Community, community, community. I went to all of my friends and I told them, I said, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I need help with. And... This book is so much more bigger than me. It's it's a book that belongs to so many people, and you could see that reflected in the acknowledgments. It really took a village to bring it to life. So I went to my Eritrean friends, and I told them. I went to my South African friends. I lived in South Africa for some time in 2009. I told them, and they were excited. They introduced me to their aunts. I went to my Somali friends. I went to my uncles in Minnesota. They introduced me to Mahalima. There were a lot of hands on deck. I'm thankful that I had so much help. And how did you make the selection? Was it their stories that were connected to the food that made you make these choices? How did you actually get to know and warm up to the women? And, and in what language did the interviews take place? Well, so I knew the number of people I was seeking out. I, it wasn't like I did an audition. It was like, okay, this is a BB. She's welcoming us into her life. And like, I wanted to honor that and carry those stories with tenderness. And so for me, it wasn't about, can I find 10 grandmothers in South Africa? And I'm going to choose the one with the most interesting story. It was, I need one person. And I think what this book also teaches the readers that all of these women are carrying incredible stories within them. And a lot of their stories are very similar because a lot of their lives have taken almost similar turns. How would you describe that, the similarities between them? I would say that a lot of their similarities involve their children, which most of them say is the pride of their lives. 
a lot of them had similar advice saying that time is the thing to focus on. You don't have a lot of it and you don't want to look back and regret. A lot of them also gave advice such as be flexible, don't be attached to outcomes. In that whether a grandmother lived in Nairobi or she lived in Minnesota, there was also a lot of travel in their lives. There was a lot of picking up and starting over. But ultimately, the core of them was was the same, which I think resonates with everyone all over the globe. It's family, it's community, it's food, it's connection, it's wanting to be loved and seen. Yeah, and this is such a beautiful way to showcase them. The photography in this book is stellar. You found the perfect photographer for this project. Will you talk about your photographer a little bit? Yeah, um, her name is Khadija M. Farah. She is a Somali Kenyan based in Nairobi. I reached out to a dear friend of my name, Kathleen, who lives in Tanzania. And I told her what I was thinking about doing. And Kathleen said to me, okay, who do you want to photograph the book? I said, she has to be Somali. Because for me, I'd never seen a Somali woman write a book like this. We're a group of people who don't keep recipes in this way. And so I thought if I was given the opportunity to do this, I could not squander it by only focusing on Somalia. And I, and I knew that I didn't want to do this book as an only Somali person. I wanted to have another person on the journey with me. And so the question you were asking, in what languages do some of these BBs speak? In Mozambique, they speak uh, Portuguese and Khadija was speaking Italian with the grandmother. And in, in the coastal towns in Kenya or in Tanzania, she was speaking Swahili. So her sensibilities, who she is, where she comes from, her, her skills, but also her human connection really brought this book to life as well. It just seems so special. I mean, she speaks an extraordinary number of languages. So your own grandmother, did you know your grandmother? Oh yeah, I, I grew up with my mother's mother. And what can you tell me about her? Is she sort of a presence in your mind and how did she influence your relationship to these other grandmothers? Um, I'm not sure that she did a lot of influencing in relations to these women, but my grandmother is very similar to a lot of the women in the book, that she's the leader in her family. She's assertive. She does not take no for an answer. Unfortunately, my grandmother is not somebody who has spent a lot of time cooking. My memories of her and our conversations now are really rooted in understanding one another and love and laughter. And I get a lot of my strength from her, which she gave to my mother. One thing that you said when you were visiting with your mother in Oslo, after you were modeling, when you met her again, after a long time, you were immediately in the kitchen and cooking together and she was telling stories. Are any of those stories ones that motivate you and then bring some of these parts of your life together, this book and your past? My relationship with my family really is based on laughter. We do a lot of laughing together and making fun of like mistakes from the past. But what my mother, who has 10 children, is really good at is encouraging her children to bring themselves always to everything that they do. And I think my mother is someone who leads by action. She has spent a lot of time in different countries learning new languages, starting over, giving birth, starting a business, starting another business. And so a lot of the way that she shows us how to be is by being, which to me is very important. So in 
working with the grandmothers and talking to them and cooking the food, what were you thinking about the women and the food? Oh, I mean, I was just a student. I didn't go into this with any attachment of an outcome. And so the very first grandmother we went to was a woman called Ma Vicky from Tanzania, who was a princess growing up. So when I went in, not only was I in awe of her as she was, but I was really in awe of her humility. And no matter whose home I went to, it really, the reception I got was almost a homecoming. And that's what I've taken with me from this project and these women outside of their grace and their humility. It's how do I be better? How do I welcome? people like that? How do I show up better for others? How do I help people's dreams get actualized? Did you feel like these women, and not to broad brush, but you were saying they have much in common. Do you feel like they had dreams that they were living out? Like when you say that, you want to help people actualize their dream. What part of this project made you feel that way? I mean that they helped a young woman who herself had a lot of stories that were similar to their own and their children without much of a connection or a relationship to me. And so that amount of grace, that amount of compassion to me, I mean, without even monetary exchanges, you know, like we had to force things on them to give to them. That kind of an example, that, like that's who I want to be. That's how I want to show up for other people who may need me. And all of them have that in common. And they've all lived out their dreams. One of them teaches a school in a coastal town called Lamu. Another one basically grew up in Australia and is now back in her hometown in Cape Town. Like, these women are extraordinary women who have either been around the world or who've decided to stay in their small towns and take care of their communities. I think one of the reasons that one has such a feeling of warmth in reading the book and is so motivated to cook, there's so much love. As you say, love of family, love of community. And actually, in many ways, love of being a woman, I felt resonating the importance of being a woman in these cultures. What did you take away about the role of women from talking to these grandmothers? That they are the backbone of their communities and their families, that they are silent power, but also know how to put up their, their guns. And that a lot of them, there's so much power in their stillness and in who they are. And there was never my gender, that gender. It was just this is it. I think there's a story where we went to go visit Ma Penny in Lowell, Massachusetts, and her husband Samuel was there and he goes, I usually do the cooking. I, I think there's a preconceived notion about other countries and how gender roles work, but my experience and even talking to these women, there were not roles, they were just humans. When I looked at the book just in terms of like, oh, what am I going to cook from here? There are so many things to cook. And I've heard you say, people sometimes think, well, African food, how am I ever going to cook that? But so much of it, as the women have said, it's like it was ingredients that were often in their backyards. It's food that's quite recognizable and things that you would have available to you or with a quick trip or mixing spice blends or whatever. What are your favorite dishes in the book to make? Oh, that's so tough. But I really do love the Eritrea chapter. I, my best friend is Ethiopian. Their cuisines are obviously similar. It used to be the same country, just split now. So a lot of that invokes for me like fun times and sitting around eating with her family in Seattle 
So I love the shuro. It's something that I make all of the time. I love the dorowat, the chicken drums in the in the stew with the eggs. I also love the sugo sukar, the Somali pasta sauce, because that can transport me right to home. And then I lived in Cape Town for some time and really had fallen in love with malval pudding and chakalaka. And so that's special for me as well. But I like to encourage people to take this book, use these recipes as a guide, and adopt them. I felt when I was reading the book, I was learning a bunch of techniques that I didn't know. Do any of techniques stand out to you that were new to you that sort of brought your cooking to another level? I've been in quarantine. I've been eating the same things. And then for the last two years, (laughs) I've been crying over this cookbook. So I haven't really had the opportunity to dive deep into any new techniques. But one of the things that I've taken away from is the many different uses of kitchens in this book. And then the many different uses of fires. You know, you you go to Mozambique and the fire of Ma Maria is so much more different than, say, Ma Ganets in the Yonkers or the the fire that is created in Madagascar. And so for me, that was really interesting, the way that in which heat was played with. Obviously, I live in a Brooklyn apartment with a gas stove, but this is encouraging me to start cooking differently and to think about food in a different way. So there's a couple of recipes in the book that are related to the business that you started, I think about five years ago, which is the Bas Bas sauces. And I, I would love to talk about those sauces and your life as a food entrepreneur, which preceded the book. And it seems like you have a few things in the, in the works there. Well, a lot of, a lot of the condiment is really inspired by cooking with my family and always going to Oslo to satisfy one part of myself and then coming back to New York and having this disconnect really from the world that I created for myself here. And so I was interested in how do I start to have conversations about who I am from a very high level place and how can I do it through food? And Bus Bus is kind of like the national condiment of Somalia. It's something that's made every day. Every family has its own recipe, but it's traditionally eaten on the side of food. And so I wanted to start with the two condiments, the, the coconut cilantro, which is in here, and then the tamarind and date sauce. And the intention was to really get to the table, introduce people to these flavors that oftentimes when they taste it, reminds them of Indian cooking. And then to really take them on a journey through the ocean from stories and recipes like this. What does the ocean mean to you? If, you know, obviously you organized the book around it. I'm just, I'm curious. Oh, God, the ocean. The Indian Ocean for me, it's my favorite ocean because it's the warmest. It's fresh. It, it's spicy. It's, it's grounding. It reminds me of my childhood. I When I picture... Growing up in Somalia, I think of Lido Beach, which is on the Indian Ocean in Somalia. And I think about kids flocking and seagulls. And so in a lot of ways, a lot of my memories about the ocean and my experience with the ocean is a bright spot in my life. When I lived in South Africa, I lived very close to the Indian Ocean, spent a lot of time there. And so over the years, it's a place I've gone back to either for new experiences or to remember old old memories. You know, you traveled to Oslo with a blender and you were really thinking that you were going to make green juices, um, which is funny because you were talking about giving green juices to a friend. I'm like, clearly you like green juice as well. But you ended up deciding to do sauces. Like that switch was because of embracing and 
wanting to share your identity as you've been sharing it over time. What sort of discoveries have you made? I think it's taught me that people are a lot more similar than they think to others. I think that what people are interested in is a human story. I think people are really drawn to authenticity. Outside of that, it's really given me this stronghold of who I am. I'm really clear on what I want out of life. I'm really clear on who I want to be. The condiments really keep me honest. The business keeps me honest in terms of, okay, if you're going to do that, you have to do it to the best of your ability. And so it's really given me permission to be my best self and to share that from a place of vulnerability and putting everything on the table and allowing people to consume it however they see fit. Do you feel like you weren't being your best self or there's a part of you that was lacking where this is the the piece that allowed you to come fully into being? Oh, totally. I mean, growing up in New York, I had been here since I was 19. I'd spent a lot of time living in other people's stories, being a model. And I'm somebody who's always been very strong head. And I, I had a good understanding of what I wanted out of life at a very young age. And so subjecting myself to live out other people's dreams for a very long time felt like I was going further and further away from where I wanted to end up. And I think this has brought me full circle. How has the entrepreneurial side of the journey been either fundraising or marketing or tasting? Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to start this business if you needed investors or... So I haven't taken any money yet. Over the years, I've toyed around with the idea of growing the business, taking money, bringing on other people. And then something happens in the middle of like doing that where I think, okay, I've got to back up a little bit. I've got to put the book out. I've got to teach people how to cook this cuisine, whether it's on YouTube or on some other channel. And all of it has kind of organically happened. And I keep coming back to the idea that when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, the universe just kind of flows around you. I really do feel like that. I feel like I'm in my groove and that has a lot to do with just being in the right thing for myself. And so the business is doing well. We're sold out right now. I saw that because I tried to go online to buy some, but that made me happy. And in fact, I'm really happy pre-ordering and just waiting for it to be the right time. So in manufacturing, you know, I've heard so many tales. You were, I imagine, making it all yourself, but are you using a co-packer now? Oh yeah, we have we have co-packers and everything. But even with that, I think a lot of people don't understand with COVID, everything changed. People in the kitchen were sick, which then would close down a whole facility for weeks or months at a time. Fulfillment centers shut down. Jars were no longer coming in from China. You know, so many things happen. And sometimes I read these emails from customers who want their product the next day. And it's so disheartening because I think to myself, God, but we're going through so much. And I mean, we as a collective, not me and my business. Um, You're developing some new products, right? Because you started with the two. But are you still planning to expand? Oh, absolutely. I mean, our intention is to become the premier condiment from the continent. So we're now expanding to some other sauces from West Africa, a few more from the East, and hopefully we end up developing a portfolio that feels authentic and is really reflective of all the different flavor profiles on the continent. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from the extraordinary Hawa Hassan.
My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to cheeselandia.com. Hey, welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is Hawa Hassan, who has written an incredible cookbook in Bibi's Kitchen. When I was reading the book, I was astonished to see how much you'd collected and synthesized and telescoped in the history of these eight countries. Is this something that you knew a lot about? before this project began? Not all eight African countries. You know, I wasn't someone who was too familiar with Comoros. Same with Madagascar and Mozambique. But my philosophy in life is that if I'm interested in it, I can learn about it and I can do it efficiently. So you have another potential book project that's on your mind. Do you want to talk about that at all? I mean, I would just say that it's along the same line as this. It's about using food kind of to report on what's happened to countries and how food has changed and how it's created countries or torn it apart. I was fascinated that you're interested in how food is affected by civil wars. Do you know much about the way in which food is affected by civil wars? I know that it has started wars. I know that it's torn countries apart. I know that it's divided tribes. And so I think I'm interested in how has it affected coffee growers in El Salvador when their war started in 1990. I recently went to El Salvador to do some research right before the pandemic. I want to know what happened to farmers in Sierra Leone when their civil war started. And so I'm getting there now in, in terms of just diving into that project and getting this one out of the way. I was curious if in doing this book, you have been talking about leaving Somalia and your journey to the States. And it is in many ways, as the stories in the book in many ways are about loss and change and war. But in fact, I feel like the narrative you're more interested in is hope and entrepreneurship and resilience and power. I just love to hear you talk about that notion of loss versus resilience, just the way that we think about the continent and how we should reframe that. I mean, I think even just outside the continent, it's an issue that plagues the whole world. I think it ultimately comes down to perspective. How do you perceive loss? Is it from a place of defeat or is it a place of, I'm thankful that happened to me, what next? Or look how hard the universe is working on my behalf, that it took me out of that situation. I can't imagine what it's like to grow up in Somalia right now. I can't imagine what it would have been for me as a 34-year-old. I have such an incredible life that I'm so grateful for, which was made possible by loss. And so a lot of it is just shifting your perspective, adjusting your ideas of what is and is not. I come from a place of my cup runneth over, and that's been me my whole entire life. And so I really double down on being resilient, but also being soft 
letting things happen to me, feeling them, and then adjusting accordingly. I think there's something to be said for people who are able to pick themselves up and carry on. And I think that's what the American dream used to be. <laughs> it's It's gotten a little bit cloudier. A- another theme I saw in the book, and it reminds me of what we're talking about now about loss versus opportunity, is scarcity. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are about scarcity and what that breeds and means and like what are the ways to think about that i think it just depends on from whose perspective like in this country we think about scarcity in a way that is like i haven't hoarded enough rice i haven't hoarded enough water where a lot of people in other parts of the world think about it from a place of is this a must do i need this and so I know what I what I know about most African people is that they start from a place of feeling full and then work their way backwards where here it always feels as if there is not enough on the table. It's almost indulgence in every part of our lives. And I've participated in that as well. And so scarcity, I think, is personal to each person and different in a lot of ways. But my experience with it is, is that if you're always coming from a place of not enough, you'll continue to seek more and more. And ultimately the issue, it's so much more bigger than scarcity, right? It's it's about your mentality of wanting to hoard more and more, I would say. I, I guess it's just another way of saying greed. You know, I mean, I think that the American disease, just to be overdramatic, is greed. Absolutely, which breeds so many other things, including fear being the biggest. I read you say that there's a question that you ask people that I just want to ask back to you because I thought it was such a good question. What is it that you know for certain? I know for certain that all things come to pass, that nothing's permanent. So I can either go with the flow or I could say stuck and fight. That's a beautiful thought on which to end part of this interview. I always ask my guests two questions at the end of each podcast. And one is, is there a woman in hospitality who you think more people need to know about? Someone that comes to top of mind is Yawande Komolov, who is a food writer at The Times and creates beautiful recipes and also has a cookbook coming out on Nigerian cuisine. She's somebody who is a personal hero and a friend that I adore. And there's also Sabine Monser, who is making Haitian food and is really paving the way for cuisine and culture conversations from there, who I adore. And she deserves all the praise. Fantastic. I can't wait to learn about her. I don't know anything about Haitian food yet. And um, she sounds like a great guide to that. And the last question is, is there an ingredient or condiment or sauce that transforms your cooking that you want to recommend to everyone who's listening? Okay, I'm just going to go from like recent time. Berbere. (laughs) The spice from Ethiopia and Eritrea really has done a lot for my roasting. So berbere is made of cinnamon stick and coriander, fenugreek, black peppercorn, cardamom, dried chilies, onion flakes, sweet paprika, ground ginger, and grated nutmeg. It is incredible. Uh, I mean, spices have been my 
lifeblood during the pandemic. You know, I can change from India to Africa to Japan to China so quickly and it's all in one drawer. Well, Hawa, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly. I love talking to you always, but in particular to hear some more about the book and the future of the sauces. And I love your vulnerability and the way that you invite people to be in community with you and how that really can change all of our lives, get rid of fear, create connection and bonds to do good. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dana. I look forward to more chats. Thank you all for listening. This has been Dana Cowan and Hawa Hassan on Speaking Broadly. Have a great week and I'll be back again next week. Bye-bye. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.